the Pro Wrestling Bowl. 35 short stories, including Harley Race, Ricky Morton, Tracy Smothers, and Tim Storm. Along with 300 photos from the independent scene. Taken from Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Get your book today by going to WrestleVille.com or LanceByChance.com. WrestleVille, it's where wrestling lives. Are you a fan of pro wrestling, comedy, and combat sports? Then we have the podcast for you, because we cover that and much, much more. Do you like to debate with your friends? Do we have the perfect segment for you? It's the 531, where we take any given subject, break it down to a top five. From there, we debate it down to three, and then into that number one spot. If you want to get a hold of us, find us on our social media. Search Working Fans Podcast on any major social media platform. And if you want to find the podcast, search for us on any major podcast platform as well as YouTube. Working Fans Podcast. We put in the work so you don't have to. We want to take a minute to thank our newest sponsor on the show, 482 Designs. That is F-O-U-R, the number is 82 Designs. 482 Designs. You can find them on Facebook by looking up F-O-U-R, 82 Designs, at F-O-U-R, 82 Designs on Instagram. And if you want to email them, Go to four82designs at gmail.com. Pretty soon, we're going to be rolling out some high-quality T-shirts and stickers that were just done by the sponsor. Please check them out for any of your screen printing needs. First off, it's a light years better than our first one. Also, we survived the washer and dryer. They look good, and they're good quality. Nice. And those stickers before Paco chewed them up were amazing. And luckily, we'll be getting some more in, hopefully, before we start selling them to fans. But that's F-O-U-R-8-2 Designs. Fans, welcome back to Working Fan Saturday, episode 57. We have author Kevin Kelton, who has written on Saturday Night Live, National Lampoons, Fridays, Night Court. He also wrote the book Super Vows and is involved with the More Perfect Union podcast. As always, we are brought to you by the Pro Wrestling Vault Volume 1, 35 short stories from across the wrestling landscape, available at WrestleVille.com and LanceByChance.com. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. I became familiar with you through the More Perfect Union podcast, which I debuted on last week. Definitely stepped outside of my comfort zone, but it's fun. And me and Dave were talking. We have a co-host out sick with COVID, so we figure, why not bring in the big guns for an interview? (laughs) Happy to be here. Thank God for COVID. (laughs) Kevin, I guess we want to start off right in the beginning. What got you started? What attracted you? To comedy writing? Yeah, what got you in this field? You know, growing up, my brothers and I were always like fans of stand-up, just as you guys are. And we used to do little improvs in the house. We didn't know the word improv. We called them games, but they were improvs. And then when I was in college, my older brother, Bobby, started doing stand-up comedy, first in Los Angeles, and then he moved back to New York to get more stage time. And I was helping him write his act. So I would go with him to the clubs at night. You know, I was 19, 20 years old. What could be more fun than going and hanging out at comedy clubs with other comics, right? And I would sit there, I'd watch the shows, and then I would hang out with the comics after the clubs closed. And I was helping him and his friends hone their acts, and I kind of learned how to write comedy just hanging out with these guys. Wow, now who was in the clubs? Like, who did you get to hang out with around that time? And who did you get to perform live? My brother's best friend from like 1975 to 1978 or longer 
was Larry David. Oh, I was around Larry David constantly. You know, Seinfeld I knew, Jay Leno I knew, Paul Reiser, Larry Miller. I'm forgetting names, but all of these guys were just... I was little Kelton. I was Bobby's little brother. And I was allowed to hang out with the gang. That's got to be crazy to be able to hear greats like that on a nightly basis or just see how they think and how they joke. Yeah, yeah. And then when I got out of college, I moved out to California. And after I had a, I was a bank teller for a few months just to make some money and get my own place. But after that, I started working at the comedy store as a doorman and an MC. And I was there, you know, five, six nights a week, seven hours at a time just watching other stand-ups. So again, it was like going to college, comedy college. How important was, I mean, obviously you can work hard, but how was important just the timing of being around all those guys at that particular time? Oh, great question. It was invaluable. I mean, I always tell people that I lucked out in my life because I have, you know, I had that, that old line from Taken, you know, I have a very particular set of skills. <laughs> well, yeah. mine isn't killing people. <laughs> I have this set of skills that I learned to sit around a conference table and make other people laugh in the conference room. <laughs> and I always tell people, if I had that skill in the 1800s or the 1920s, I'd have been the asshole out in the farm just trying to make the, the donkeys laugh, you know? And because I came of age in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I was able to take that little skill in the world and turn it into a full-blown career. That's amazing. Now, how was it to work at the comedy store? Because in comedy, that's like one of those sacred places that for so many people, it's important to be past there, the people that they get to see. You make lifelong friends there. So what was your experience at the comedy store? I made lifelong friends there. Now, when when I started in New York, the clubs were the Improv, Catch a Rising Star, and the Comic Strip. Those were the three main clubs in the 70s. And of course, Caroline's and Dangerfields came a little later. And now I think there's a place called the Comedy Cellar. But those first three were kind of like my home base when I started in New York. When I came out to LA, it was the Comedy Store and the Improv also in Hollywood. I liked the improv a little bit better because I just felt more at home there. I became a regular there, whereas at the comedy store, I was just sort of an MC slash open micer. I never became a full-fledged official regular there, although I did some sets. But the friends that I made, again, many of them are still my good friends to this day. Some are no longer with us, but people that I was very close to, Bob Schimmel, Bob Saget, who just passed this week, we hung out, you know, I went to his home, we went to Disneyland together, you know, just people that I hung out with. And this is before they were famous. They were just other guys that I was starting out. That's amazing, man. I mean, so it's not even just your success. It's not only just like hard work timing, but I think also networking, right? You're meeting the right Oh, people. sure. Yeah. My first TV job, again, I was known as Bobby's little brother and I did stand up at the comedy store and a guy named Mark Berkowitz, who changed his, his name professionally to Mark Summers, because this was right after David Berkowitz had kind of ruined that last <laughs> name for the nation. I don't know whether you guys remember him. He was son of Sam. Yes. <laughs> right when old. I heard that name, I'm like, ooh, that's an unfortunate question. I, I remember Mark Summers. I'm like, oh, yeah. Double <laughs> yeah. So his real name is Mark Berkowitz. But anyways, great guy. Well, he was a stand up there and he also was getting a lot of writing gigs on game shows. And one day he says to me, you know, I got offered a potential job. I'm too busy to take it. It's on this show, Crosswits. I told them about you. Do you want me to tell them about you? I said, sure. So he sets up this interview. I go in for the interview and I got to back, I got to backtrack this story. A couple of months before this meeting, they at that time, the dating game was using a lot of stand up comedians as bachelors. And I was on the dating game. Okay. 
So now six months later, I go into this meeting. And as I walk in the door, this producer says to me, Kevin, I got to apologize to you up front. After we set this meeting, uh, we went and hired another writer. So the position you're here for is filled. But since you already drove down here, why don't we sit and chat and who knows what comes of it? I said, sure. I was already there, right? We start talking and he goes, you know, you look familiar to me. And I said, yeah, you know, you kind of look familiar to me too. And we start playing what we call Jewish geography in New York, which <laughs> is, did you ever go here? Did you go to this school? Did you ever? And after like uh, several rounds of that questioning, he goes, did you ever audition for the dating game? I said, yeah, yeah. I did the dating game of, you know, several months ago. He said, I was at your audition. You're a funny dude. Because I was funny in the audition. I stunk on the real show, but I was funny in the audition. And based on that, he recommended me to another guy, and I got my first job off of that. Wow, that's amazing. And that's kind of how you broke into the TV business? That was my first gig was on a game show called Face the Music. It was sort of like Name That Tune, but you had to take the song titles and write funny puzzles using the song titles. And that's what the writing staff did. So I did that, and then I went back to Face the Music. I did a full season there. In 1980, I went back for a second season there. And four weeks into the second season, I got the job at Fridays. And so I became a a comedy writer. Wow. Now, what was that experience on Fridays? Because that is probably a a forgotten show outside of if you're an Andy Kaufman fan and you're familiar with the incident with him during that. And that was a show starring Larry David too, right? Larry was one of the cast members and it was just a coincidence that we were working on the same show because I had known him again. He was a family friend many years before that. He had nothing to do with me getting the job. It was just a coincidence. It was a fun experience. It was a little tough being my first comedy writing job because the pressure to turn out material is really, really difficult, you know, and I was able to just keep my head above water, but maybe not good enough. I only did one season there, probably because I didn't get enough stuff on the air. Although last year I did another podcast talking about this. And after the podcast, the host told me he spoke to another writer on the show and found out that they let me go because I was one of the very few writers that didn't do drugs and they didn't feel comfortable around me. Wow. <laughs> they thought I was like a narc or something. <laughs> wow. Imagine that being the thing that oh, disqualifies man. you. But yeah. it sounds almost like comedy is a little like pro wrestling where the society is upside down. Different things are valued. And just how you would approach that particular thing is that that's funny, though, to hear. Yeah, I was the straight-laced guy that when I went uh, into the other writers' rooms, so they were all filled with smoke. It was like a bad sketch, you know? And I was the one that was coughing and going, ah, I got to get some fresh air. <laughs> I never I never did uh, – I mean, I did grass a couple of times in college, but only when somebody handed me a, a joint. I never bought it and never used it myself. I never saw cocaine until many years later. So I was just like this, you know, this straight-laced arrow with a button-down shirt on this show with all of these druggies. But Fridays was a terrific writing staff, a terrific cast, had a lot of fun there, learned a lot. Now, I left the show just weeks before the Andy Kaufman incident, Mm. but I can tell you that that was all staged. If you have any doubts about whether that was real or not, of course it wasn't real. It's Andy. (laughs) God, and I... I'm such an Andy Kaufman mark that it's like the wrestling fan in me should know it was set up. Oh, but then there's that little bit of doubt. And it's you like, believe. I want to believe in Andy that <laughs> it's like, you almost want it to be true. I'll tell you a quick Andy Kaufman story. Now, like I said, I was hanging out at the improv in the mid to late seventies with my brother before I got into the business. And one night Andy was emceeing at the improv 
and he was emceeing in one of his characters. Now, I don't know whether you ever saw Andy do stand-up, pure stand-up, but he would try to annoy the audience, just like he did on Fridays in the mock sketch. He would try to piss off the audience. That was his goal, whereas other people wanted to get the audience to laugh. He wanted to get people to want to kill him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this one night, it was sort of a Tony Clifton character before Tony Clifton had been invented. He was wearing like a tuxedo and he was this obnoxious character. I forget what name he was using. And, you know, he would bring people on stage and be doing some mock bit. And then he would throw water on one of the people and they'd want to hit him and, be, and the bouncers would have to break it up. And it was all staged. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he did this one bit that to me is one of the funniest things I ever saw. At one point, he goes up. Now, remember, he's the MC of the show, right? Bringing the acts on and off. So an act finishes, he goes up and he goes, you know, I see you folks, you know, you're laughing at everybody else. You're not laughing at me. So we're going to try something different. If you don't think I'm funny, maybe I could, you know, instill a little culture in you people. And he takes out The Great Gatsby. (laughs) The actual book opens it. He says, we're going to read The Great Gatsby. He opens it to page one and starts reading. And Dave, Joe, I'm telling you, he didn't read a paragraph. (laughs) He didn't read a page. He gets like two or three pages into the novel. And the audience is going, (laughs) you know what? The guys, you know, guys on dates who were dropping money to, you know, show their girl a good time. They're going, get the, you know what, off the stage, you asshole, you blanking, you know, idiot. They're ready to kill him. And I'm watching this in the back of the room. Now, I know it's a put on. And I'm watching this slowly evolve to the point where this could really turn into something violent. And at one point, they're all yelling at him. And Andy stops reading. He looks at the audience like a teacher. People. And he flips through the pages of the book. He goes, we have this far to go. (laughs) And the entire room broke into laughter. It was the greatest laugh I've ever remembered in my 45 years of the business. That's such a good story. And it makes so much sense why he went into pro wrestling as a heel, because it just seems like getting that reaction was what entertained him and being able to do it to such a level. Yeah. Well, when I was was a doorman at the comedy store a couple of years later, Andy in the main room at the comedy store, this is in Los Angeles, was wrestling women on stage. That's where he got into it. And he was developing that whole thing by wrestling women on stage. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be there live, to hear that, to experience that? Was How was the crowd taking it? Oh, they loved it. They loved it. I mean, you know, people were reacting like it was wrestling because they kind of knew that it was a bit. Right. Yeah. They went with it. And, you know, some of the women, I don't know whether they were plants. I think some of them were really just women who thought, this guy's a loudmouth. I'm going to teach him a lesson. And it would get pretty... Intense. They were really wrestling on stage. But Andy was always doing stuff like this. At the same time, Robin Williams had just blown up. You know, Mork and Mindy had just started and he had blown up his career. And these guys were in the comedy store all the time. Letterman was there. Leno was there. Gary Shandling wasn't even a big name yet. And I was just immersed in all of this. Wow. Those are some heavy hitters to be coming up and just learning around. Like the amount of comedy that must hit you accidentally at that point. Yeah. has got to be like invaluable. Just through osmosis, you learn. Now, not everybody that I knew and worked with there went on to have solid careers. A lot did, but a lot didn't. And, you know, I realized pretty early on that my skill level or my skill set was not stand-up. I was competent. I could get on stage and make a club audience laugh, but I was never going to be a really great stand-up. 
And I figured that out early on. So I went into writing, which was really where my passion was. How does how do you come to a point where you're able to apply for Saturday Night Live and get on there? Okay, so I did Fridays, which was already a live sketch comedy show. And then I got several more sketch comedy jobs after that. I, I did a Steve Martin special called Twilight Theater. I did something called Laugh Tracks that Howie Mandel was on mm. and a couple of other very funny people and a few other shows like that. And so I was already a working pro. My agent said, it was the summer of 1983. My agent said, SNL is looking for people. Why don't you put together what they, they need a sample packet? That's what they call it. So I put together, you know, four or five sketches into this packet. She sent it to SNL. She calls me up. She says, they liked it. They want to talk to you on the phone. I was in Los Angeles. They set up this phone interview. I'm talking with the producers. You know, they it's a typical interview. Tell us about yourself. Tell us how you got into the business. Tell us what you like to do. And then at the end, they said, look, we like your stuff, but we're not there yet. Why don't you write a couple of more things? Give us three more pieces by the end of the week. So I'm talking to them like on a Monday or a Tuesday. And I realized what they were doing was they were testing me to see if I could write on deadline because they probably figured correctly that I just reached into my trunk of existing sketches for the packet that I sent. So they wanted to see what I had that I could turn out under pressure. So I, in 48 hours, I wrote three more sketches. I didn't wait till the end of the week. I got it to them two days early and my agent sent them in. They liked it. I got the job. Nice. Not to get like into money, but like... Was this financially a game changer being a part of SNL or was just... Yeah. And by the way, I don't mind talking about money at all, really. So (laughs) I'll tell you, my first year there, and again, this is the mid 80s. So these numbers are not going to seem like a lot of money, but they were a good amount of money to me at the time. I was making, I think, $3,250 per episode. Mm -hmm. So you multiply that out by 20 episodes. What is that? That's not even $50,000, right? I don't know. I'm not no, good it, with math. No, it's, I'm, no, it's 70, it's, I'm it. sorry. I'm thinking of 10. It's like almost 70 some odd thousand. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's over 50. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking 10 instead of 20. But for a young kid, and I was able to get a decent place in New York, you know, not too expensive. Right. My second year, I got a big bump in pay because I, I delivered. Financially, it was a game changer. I still wasn't making six figures. Right soon after that, I, I, I jumped into the six figure range and then it took off exponentially from there. Wow. Now, what was it like to be at SNL? Were you a fan before going there. I hear it's a crazy environment to work in just because you have such a wild schedule and you got a week to get that show out. Right. Well, that is true, but it's also very much a well-oiled machine, especially when I was there. I was there in seasons nine and 10. The show was already so professional that the crew, they were just unbelievable. They could do anything in a day. So it was never like, how are we going to do this? It was just a question of getting enough material to fill the show. So the schedule, and this many, many articles and books have been written about this. You probably know it. Yeah, Monday and Tuesday night to write the show. You meet with the host on Monday afternoon. It's a song and dance meeting where people pretend they have ideas. Usually you got nothing, but you sell them that you've got ideas so that they don't, you know, go home back to their hotel in a panic and quit. And then we go to our offices and start, you know, spitballing ideas and and coming up with uh, sketch ideas. And then you write them out. Monday night is a late night, Tuesday night, very late night. Sometimes I didn't leave the office until seven or eight or nine in the morning on Wednesday. Then you come back in the afternoon for the read through the table read. 
And, you know, they've got 30, 40 sketches. They all get read out loud and then the producers go off and they pick the eight or 10 that they want in the show. What was your favorite thing that you wrote there or your favorite piece that you were involved with? Well, there's no one favorite, but I guess among my favorites, I wrote something for Jim Belushi called The High School Chess Coach. And the premise was he was a coach of a high school chess team, but he was like Bobby Knight constantly throwing fits, you know, kicking, throwing chairs, kicking the chairs when he was upset, yelling from the sidelines. So I wrote that piece and that got a a pretty good reaction and it's shown a lot in clip shows. I wrote a piece for Billy Crystal right after the We Are the World video. Mm. You guys probably remember Michael Jackson and all of the celebrities in, in We Are the World. Yeah. Which was a big, big cultural thing at the time. To you, it's just history, but it was a huge part of the culture at the time. And I had read in the papers after this thing came out that the reason Prince wasn't there, and that was a big deal that for some reason Prince didn't show up that night, was he claimed that his bodyguards had got arrested at some club and he had to go bail them out. It was it was bullshit. Prince just didn't want to do it because he didn't want to share the stage with anyone else. But that was his PR story. So it occurred to me, this guy has such a big ego that he probably wants to do his own video. So I wrote this piece for Billy Crystal to do as Prince called I Am Also the World. (laughs) And and I wrote this little song and we had other people doing impressions coming in just like in the We Are the World video. And that worked pretty well. That was on the show that Hulk Hogan and Mr. T co-hosted. So those are two, but there were were a lot of sketches that that I liked. When I was looking through your credentials and stuff, I was a big fan of the Jeffersons growing up. We'd watch shows like that, me and my dad. And I saw you got to write on an episode. And I'm just curious, one, how was that experience? And two, how does that happen where you only write for like an episode? Are you just, are you contracted? Like, hey, let's just write this one episode or? Yeah, good question. So this was actually the same. This was a year before 1982. I was only working on sketch comedy at the time, right? I didn't really break into sitcoms until the late 80s. But I did get some meetings to go out and pitch ideas for sitcoms because I had written spec scripts. I wanted to work on sitcoms. And so one of the shows I, I go in on is The Jeffersons. So when you're going in as a what they call a freelance writer, you're not hired yet, but you're going in to pitch them ideas. You go in and you have six, eight, 10, 12 ideas, and you sit in a room with the producers and you, you pitch them one after one and they knock them out or they say, hey, there might be something there. And sometimes you get lucky and you get an assignment. Well, I went in and I pitched to these two producers, David Casey and, and, and no, Peter Casey and David Lee. And they liked one idea, which was a Christmas episode idea, but they already had their Christmas episode for that year. But everything else they said, they'd either done something like it before or it wasn't quite right for the show. So I go off and I go about my life. Months go by, don't think about it. And then the same summer that I ultimately got SNL, about two weeks before I got SNL, I get a call from my agent saying, David Lee, excuse me, yeah, Peter Casey and David Lee want to talk to you again. They want to call you. So I'd say, yeah, give my number. They call me up. They say, Kevin, we got some good news and some bad news for you. You remember that Christmas story idea that you pitched us a year and a half ago? I said, yeah, of course I do. They said, well, we couldn't use it then because we already had a Christmas episode, but we'd want it, we want to use it this season for our Christmas episode this year. That's the good news. The bad news is we need to turn it around in like 48 hours. So we don't have time to farm out the script to you. We're just going to give you story credit and we're going to write the story in-house, the script in-house. At the time, I had a really bad flu. I, w- I was like on my deathbed. And to me, it was like, this is the only good thing that's happened to me all week. I said, sure, whatever, guys. You know, you could have just stolen it. They didn't do that. They right. had the ethics to call me up, say, we remember that story. 
and we're going to give you story credit on it. So I said, yeah, whatever. So I just got paid for that storyline. It says story by Kevin Kelton, and it says Teleblade by somebody else. And that's that was my first sitcom credit, but I really had, other than the premise, I had nothing to do with it. How did you get involved with Boy Meets World, Night Court, and then soon we're going to get into your book and talk about the podcast here? Great. So after SNL, I, I kept doing sketch shows because, you know, you get typecast as a writer, just like you get typecast as an actor. And I was having trouble breaking into sitcoms. But in the late 80s, I was able to cross over and start getting sitcom jobs, which is really where I knew my skill set was. It's it's a different type of writing and a different set of skills. And I always knew that I was more cut out for sitcoms than I was for sketches, but you know, you get pigeonholed. So I finally broke in. I did a Fox series called Women in Prison. I think that was my first half hour credit. That lasted like one season. Then I did a short-lived series for NBC called Night and Day with uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel. They were the showrunners but that only lasted like four or six episodes. Then I did a Dick Van Dyke series, believe it or not. That only wow. lasted, I think, eight or nine episodes. That wasn't a great writing experience, although Dick was wonderful, wonderful to work with. And then I got A Different World, and then Night Court, and then I did several other shows. And then one season, my agent called me and said, we sent your script out to a lot of places. The show that wants to meet you is Boy Meets World. I said, I've never seen Boy Meets World. I don't watch TGIF shows. The only thing I know about Boy Meets World is that my friend Bob Saget has a different show on it. Not Boy Meets World, TGIF. Yeah. I said, you know, you're going for the interview. So I went in, I got the job. I was a Boy Meets World writer. Wow. Like when I told my buddy about that, he's like, holy shit. I'm like, (laughs) I know because me and him watched it growing up. So to find out that somebody that invited me on to help with their podcast wrote with Boy Meets World, I'm like, hold on. It's, how, it's so how funny to hear the experience, here? though, because for you, it was like, I don't even know if I want to do this. But <laughs> For me, I wanted to be working on Friends, right. Frasier, yeah. News Radio, Larry Sanders, sure. you know, Seinfeld. So I was the disenchanted writer there. I look back on it now and I realize I was just being a prima donna because it was a very good show. It wasn't at that level of the other, you know, the more cutting edge shows, but it was a good show and its fan base loves it to this day. Yeah, it so, even spawned a recent remake. Uh, yes, yes. But at the time, I think I was a little bit jaded. But I did two seasons there. Season, well, I did half a season because I came on in the middle of the 94 95 season. And then the 96 97 season, I was there. Great cast, terrific writing staff. Michael Jacobs, a joy to work for. You know, so uh, in retrospect, I feel very blessed to have worked there. Nice. Now, how hard is the writing game? Because it sounds like you do a lot of work or you see a lot of jobs. You've got things that you hope for, but then there's things that just come to you. Is it as cutthroat as an industry as it almost sounds? Oh, yeah. It's a lot of work. It's cutthroat. I'm not sure I would use that term, but it's very competitive. There's a lot of disappointment. You have to be able to take rejection. And I won't go into details, but there were like little things that were like almost fell into place that didn't, that I still look back and go, man, I wish I'd gotten a little bit of a break there and gotten on that. Like I really wanted Mad About You. And I wrote a spec Mad About You script and my agent sent it out. You know, I think I got, I got a different world off of my Mad About You script, which is not, I mean, couldn't be totally more right. different shows. Yeah. The next year, I go in for an interview for Night Court as for a potential writing job. And the two guys who were running Night Court the year before had been the executive producers of Mad About You. 
And when I went in for the interview, they told me, you know, we loved your Mad About You script. If we had seen that last year, we would have hired you. I said, I thought it was sent to you guys. They said, no, we never saw it. So So hearing like things like that, that's got to be like, oh, if only like. Exactly. Now, how did you come about to writing your own book, which we have right here, Super Vows? Thank you. Thank you for for plugging it. So, you know, after my my television career slowed up, because obviously I don't do as much, I don't do any television now, but you know, in the 2000s, it slowed up quite a bit. So I started looking at other forms of writing and I had started working on that novel in, in the year 2000 or 2001. And I got 85 pages into it. And then I went back to other writing projects and never got back to it. And this past year or the year before, I realized, hey, you know what? I should finish that sucker. So I finished this novel and it turned out to be my first complete novel. And I self-published it. I'm I'm incredibly proud of it because unlike television or, or the movie business or sketch comedy, your material always has to be interpreted through the talents of actors and directors and and set designers and everything else. And everybody has input into your words. You write a novel, it's yours. People like it, they don't like it, but that is me, that is Kevin Kelton. It will endure in, you know, in the zeitgeist forever as a sample of what I can do as a writer without having actors or directors or everybody else determining what works and what doesn't. Now that's got to feel like a big accomplishment. How did you come around to podcasting? Because we'll end on this note. You are a part of the More Perfect Union podcast, Real Debate Without the Hate. Yeah. So I'm really into politics, just like you guys are into wrestling or into comedy. I was always talking about it with friends, was always posting about it on Facebook. Then in 2014, I realized that the bitterness that now is so pervasive about political discussions, it was starting out then. It was getting really toxic. And I noticed that my timeline was becoming like a really kind of negative place. Mm. And I said, you know, I still want to talk about politics, but I don't want my, I, I like, you know, seeing pe- pictures of people's puppies and their food, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I decided to make a political group where people could just discuss politics and it would be separate from my timeline. So I created this, this group called um, Open Fire Politics. And the group is still going, but that, that was in 2014 or something. And soon after that, somebody in the group said, hey, does anybody want to do a political podcast? I knew nothing about podcasting, but I volunteered as one of the people. Four or five of us started this podcast, just like you guys do a roundtable podcast. And it's endured. We've we've now been doing it for, see, we started in September of 2014. So we're well past the seven-year mark. No, 2015, excuse me. So we're past the six-year mark, I guess. And it's, you know, we've gone through a lot of co-hosts, a lot of cast changes, but I'm still there churning them out. And now mm-hmm. Joe is part of the family and we're really happy for that. Yeah, it's done with Greg Matuzic and Ward. Oh, I'm blanking on his last name. Anderson. Anderson, thank you. And it was really fun to go on. And part of the reason that I was interested in it was it was political. So it was getting outside of my comfort zone. But you kept saying, like, it's going to be fun. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And then we get in there, we talk politics. And it wasn't hard at all. And it was it was wild to be in there with guys that were more experienced than me at this because me and Dave, it seems like a lot of the podcasts we do, people have been doing it about the same amount of time and we have about the same credentials. So to come in and be involved with you guys, I was like, oh, wow, this is this is big time here tonight. 
Well, you're, you're very complimentary and maybe a little too kind, but I'm, I'm so glad that we found you and you found us. And now that you're part of the MPU family, looking forward to doing another podcast with you there probably this weekend. And Dave, I'm never going to see you again. So <laughs> Actually, I just wanted to say a couple of things. One, I love the name because, you know, debate without the hate. I love that. Because it is, it's so true. Everything this has a negative, even not just politics, any kind of online debates, it's very, so toxic right now. Yeah. And the other thing I have to say, I listened to the episode, you know, Joe was on it. So I was like, okay, let me take a look at it. And as somebody who doesn't follow a ton of politics, easy listen, flew right by, really, I recommend it to people. And I said, just give it a shot. I said, it's an easy listen. It's, yeah, that's the best thing I could say. It was a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, we, we try to make it light. You know, I've got a somewhat of a comedy background. Ward Anderson is a stand-up comedian and a writer and a producer. Greg is just a school teacher, but one of the, the most naturally funny people I've ever met. And we just have a good time talking about the news of the week or, or what we're watching on TV or, or what's going on in sports, just like you guys do. It's, it's just a light breezy little podcast that our fan base seems to like. So thank you for letting me plug it. Again, it's called the More Perfect Union Podcast. You can find us at mpupodcast.com. And I'm going to plug my book one more time, Super Vows. It's on Amazon. It's a dark comedy. It is not for the kiddies. Don't buy it for your, for your 13 or 14 year old kids. There are some adult passages in there, but it is, if you like, like dark satire, it, it draws more on my SNL back, excuse me, more on my National Lampoon background than on, you know, Boy Meets World. Yeah. <laughs> People, please go to Amazon and look for that. I'd love to sell you a book and love to be part of your um, your bookcase. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining us. All right. So that wraps us up for this week. Thank you again for listening to the Working Fans Podcast. So as always, you can find us on Twitter at Fans Working. Our Facebook page is Working Fans Wrestling Pod. We have email where you can reach out to us and let us know what you think also. That's Working Fans Wrestling Pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Working Fans Wrestling underscore pod. And then as always, please, Continue to listen to us on Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, all your major platforms. If you're following us on Apple Podcasts, which we are also on now, and YouTube, please make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It helps us bring you these podcasts where we get to talk to you and talk with you every week. 